You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, the title of my message today is, I hope you all can see um, the PowerPoint, but who am I finding our identity and calling in Christ? So I believe one of the most prominent questions of our day, both outside and inside the church, is one of identity. Who am I? And our American secular culture has an answer for us. The answer is found where? In you. So to live out your identity means to go deeper inside, within, to find that authentic self, that divine spark, and then to live into it completely and unreservedly. So I'm going to read a couple of quotes that are popular today. Um, You don't have to raise your hand, but I wonder if you've heard any of the following sayings. The first one, God created you to be your authentic self and to rest in your true identity. Second, the world needs who you were made to be. And then last, true belonging doesn't require you to change who you are. It requires you to be who you are. But these common sayings still beg the question, who am I? What is my authentic self? Is it my Myers-Briggs acronym or my Enneagram number? Please tell me. And perhaps some of us may be thinking this morning, Kristen, I know what you're going to say. The answer is Jesus. It's in your title. And yes, of course the answer is Jesus. Um, But before we look at what that means, I want to pause here for a moment because I think most of us, whether we realize it or not, struggle at some point with identity and calling or purpose. And sometimes it isn't until we've been operating, uh, sorry, it isn't until we're in those moments of transition or crisis that we realize we've been operating from a place of fragile self-based identity. Let me provide some personal examples. When I graduated at the age of 26 from grad school, and I was no longer a student, and for three months did not have a job, I realized that I had a lot of self-worth in what I did, because when I lost the identity of a student and didn't have the identity of something else to take that place, I was devastated. I struggled. I also struggled with my identity when I became a stay-at-home mom. And by this point, I had a career that I gave up to now wipe a dirty bottom and do dirty laundry and breastfeed. And all of a sudden, I realized that I had put self-worth and value in what I did, and this type of work just wasn't as valuable. Before I married my husband, I seemed to have a lot of first dates, um, but no one ever seemed to stick around. And I began to think I was someone who was unlovable or someone who no one wanted to be with. And for you, maybe it's, I'm a mom and my children have left home and now I don't have anyone to take care of. Or I've been given a diagnosis of an incurable disease. Who am I? And for all of us, I believe we face this question when we sin. Who am I? What kind of person am I to do that sin again? To lose my temper again? To say those hurtful words again? to hurt the person I love so much again. So as you perhaps do a personal reflection on maybe moments 
of transition and crisis in your life, let me ask you, do you take comfort and strength in your authentic self? Is there some kind of person, and I'm thinking inside out, that movie, that is sustaining you? Does your Enneagram number or Myers-Briggs acronym actually give you the inner strength to face these difficult tests of identity and purpose? Or does it comfort you when you sin? I'm a three. It's okay. I'm, you know, an unhealthy three. Um, If our identity is based on ourselves apart from God's work in Jesus Christ, then we will find that we are imperfect. We won't be courageous enough, smart enough, pretty enough, uh, fill in the blank, enough. So if my identity rests on what I can do for myself, I can tell you from past experience, I will inevitably disappoint myself. So I want to address this question today because I believe at some point we all struggle with it. Like, who are we? Um, I also want to address it because the world is giving us the same answer over and over, just repeat, uh, packaged in a different way with a new book title and a new book cover. Um, I also believe that how we answer this question of identity will determine how we live. And last, I want to address this question because... God cares deeply about how we view ourselves. I believe that God cares deeply how we view ourselves. So I'm going to give you the answer here at the beginning that I think um, the Bible gives. And then we're going to tease it out so that if you don't hear anything else I say, I hope you'll hear this. So here's my statement. Who we are, the meaning of who we are, is rooted in Jesus Christ and who he is for me. Who I am Who you are, who I am, is rooted in Jesus Christ and who he is for me. This is what David says in Psalm 56. This I know, God is for me. This means our identity and calling are grounded in the person and action of God who is single-mindedly for us. We are who God declares us to be, not who your boss declares you to be, your spouse, your child, The world, we are who God declares us to be. Our identity then is fixed in this permanent exchange that took place on the cross wherein God took our place so that we might be in his place. So by being in Christ, we share in his righteousness and glory. So I hope you're hearing good news. Because who you are, the meaning of your life is not determined by what you do or don't do, how many cells you make or don't make, how many books you have or don't have, how many cases you win or don't win, uh, how much money you have in the bank or don't have, how much weight you lose or how much weight you gain, the person you marry, the person you don't, the kids you have or the kids you don't. Um, It isn't even determined by the good works we do for Jesus or the great sins we've committed. If you are in Christ today, then your identity and purpose is solely determined by Jesus Christ and who he is for you. So we're going to tease this out now from Scripture, specifically from 2 Corinthians. And what I'm going to do first is try to answer this question. Okay, Kristen, you said Jesus Christ who is for you. What does that mean, right? How is our identity in Jesus Christ? And then second, I want us to look at four metaphors that Paul uses to describe how our identity affects the way we live our lives. So I'm going to try to do this with this. Uh, PowerPoint. Ah, can y'all see that? 
All right, so who is Jesus for us? We're going to begin with 2 Corinthians 5. For the love of Christ compels us, since we have reached this conclusion. If one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. A few verses later, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So here at the very beginning, and what we find out through all of scripture, that the first and basic understanding of who God is for us is a God who loves us. A God who loves us. We are people loved by God. First John, God is? Y'all can answer. Love, thank you. First John 4, 8. God is love. I love this quote by T.F. Torrance, who's a theologian. He writes, God is who he is as he who loves us with his very being. He whose loving is as inexhaustible as his infinite being. For his love is his being in ceaseless triune movement and activity. God's first and last word for us in Jesus Christ is love. But he doesn't love in the abstract. It's not some kind of squishy, meaningless love. He loves concretely and actively. We see this right in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life and not perish. Ephesians 2. But God who is rich in mercy because of what? His love, his great love that he had for us made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. Even his mercy is fueled by his love for us. Another quote by Torrance. That God is love means that he is the eternally loving one in himself, who loves through himself, whose love moves unceasingly within his eternal life as God, so that in loving us, in the gift of his dear son and the mission of his spirit, he loves us with the very love which he is. You get that? He loves us with the very love which he is. He loves us with the very love which he is. His cross then becomes the ultimate display of his love, wherein he died for all of us so that in him his death becomes our death and his life becomes our life. He took our sin on the cross and gave us his righteousness. This exchange that took place on the cross and is granted for all who believe has amazing implications. So if we view his cross as simply saving us from our sins, a cold transaction between the Father and the Son to secure our pardon. Let me say that again. If we view his cross as simply saving us from our sins, a cold transaction between the Father and the Son to secure our pardon, then we've missed the full purpose of God. The purpose of God is to have us as his children, as his daughters. Looking again at 2 Corinthians 6, says, For we are the temple of the living God. I will dwell and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. I love Colossians 3. 
For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So what he did on the cross wasn't just to like buy our pardon. It was to have us as his people, and then to give us a new identity. Christ is now our life, right? This is such great news. That's why then in Romans 14, Paul writes, If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Christ died and returned to life for this, that he might be Lord over both the dead and the living. And so what is the purpose of this exchange? We see it back in 2 Corinthians 5. So that those who live should no longer live for who? Themselves. But for the one who died for them and was raised. Our calling and purpose then flows naturally from this new reservoir of identity in Christ. So I just think that is beautiful. That God who is for us is a God who is love. But he also is someone who knows that if we just feed on ourselves... We go within where it's going to kill us. But he's going to give us himself so that we may have a new identity, a new life. Our identity is now wrapped up in who Jesus Christ is for us. So I'm going to say a word now about the Christians in Corinth. And those of you who are Advent members, it's no accident that we have gone through a series on 1 Corinthians and God has put me in 2 Corinthians, and then our dean the last two weeks has spoken from 2 Corinthians. Um, But I want to remind us what's going on at the church in Corinth. Um, Corinthians were obsessed. So this is just Corinthians, not necessarily in the church, although I will say it it has come into the church. But Corinthians were obsessed with status, glory. They were socially ambitious to climb the ladder of success. They wanted to advance in their standing and make a name for themselves. Kind of sounds like our culture, right? Consequently, there was a great divide between the rich and the poor. So what was the first problem in 1 Corinthians that Paul addresses? Do you all remember? It's okay. Um, Paul, (laughs) Paul addresses that they are each claiming an apostle for themselves. I follow this one, and I belong to this one. Um, They were fighting over which apostle they thought uh, was the best fit for their Greek culture. And here's what had happened in the church in Corinth. Uh, In the culture at large, they were trying to advance, to make a name for themselves. Where might that be easier to do? Inside the church. Inside the church provided a place for them to do that. And so they brought that in. They were living for themselves. They were fighting over which apostle they followed. And um, now they're embarrassed by Paul. They're ashamed of him. He was a poor, Jewish, unimpressive speaker who caused them more shame than pride. And they were embarrassed by his weak physical appearance his apparent unimpressive oratory skills, his sufferings for the gospel, and his poverty. You see, they had this um, in their culture, who they were associated with determined their own status. And that happens today, right? 
we like to brag who we rubbed elbows with. You know, I met this famous person or I know this person. It somehow reflects on our status. And the same thing was happening here. Their identity was in who they were, who they were. And they were using the values of the culture to determine their value. And they were living for themselves. And this resulted in what? Rivalry. Do I remember all the problems in 1 Corinthians? Rivalry, boasting, um, using the Lord's Supper as a way for the poor to go hungry and the rich to be full. They were using their spiritual gifts as a way to one-up one another. And so Paul addresses in both letters um, this issue of identity, and he's trying to reorient it according to the gospel. So we're going to look now at some metaphors that Paul gives in order to reorient um, how they view themselves. So the first, I have captured slaves, and I'm actually going to um, talk about, I think prisoners is a better word, but captured prisoners in a triumphal procession, incense and aroma, letters of recommendation, jars of clay. So he has said, your identity is in Christ, Um, Christ is your life, but you're not living as if Christ is your life, you're living for yourself. And so he's going to give them some metaphors. The first one, captured prisoners being led in procession. 2 Corinthians 2, but thanks be to God who always leads us in Christ's triumphal procession and through us spreads the aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. While this metaphor may not seem very obvious to us as we're reading our English translations, but there's a Greek word that is being translated here as triumphal procession. And for many, we might read that and think, oh, yeah, we're part of Christ's army triumphing, you know, in our victory march, being led in this parade. But is this what Paul means? Ah, how many of y'all been to Rome? A few of y'all. Um, this past May and June, uh, we lived in Rome for about a month while my husband studied at a library, and we visited the Roman Forum. This arch, Titus's arch, is in the is, is in the Roman Forum. And so, what is a triumphal procession? A triumphal procession was an opportunity for Imperial Rome to show off its power and its wealth. So, what would happen is when the Imperial Army went and conquered a people. They would bring them back through the streets of Rome, eventually through the Forum, and they would bring back their prisoners of war and all their loot. Can you tell who is the prisoners in this one? Jewish Jewish people, because we see the menorah. And I hate to move away from my microphone, but um, if you're able to see, there are some with their hands behind their backs, and then there's some with the army, and they have garlands around their heads. So the Roman general would lead this triumphal procession with gold and garlands, and his army would have these garlands, and they would parade the prisoners and the loot. So who are we in this metaphor? Most scholars agree when this Greek term used is followed by a direct personal object, all that to say is it means to lead as a conquered enemy in a victory parade. Therefore, stunningly, this metaphor depicts Christians as conquered prisoners. Why in the world would Paul use a metaphor of us, uh, like this, of us? Well, Paul tells us in Romans and elsewhere that we were once enemies of God, right? 
But unlike a Roman general who conquered people by his um, by by the in vengeance and because they were his enemies, God has captured us by his love. Christ captures us by his love. What did that first text in Second Corinthians say? Christ's love compels us. We are captured by his love and followed behind him. And in this way, God shows off a power greater than imperial Rome. For it's easy to crush one's enemies. It's a whole other power that can woo his enemies and then die for them. So he's using this metaphor to show off God's great power. That unlike Rome, which would go out and crush their enemies, Christ, by his love, has died for his enemies. And he leads us in this way. So walking in the way of Christ means that we will suffer. It involves dying to the things and values of this world. It involves denying ourselves. It involves having our weakness on display. But it also means that we bear in our bodies and in our weaknesses a living testimony of the power of God. Yes, we will walk in the way of suffering, but what does Jesus say? His yoke is easy and his burden is light. This is um, what Jesus says in Luke 9. If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Forever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. For what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself? And this is where the metaphor to me gets even just more mind-boggling. Um, because in a triumphal procession, prisoners of war were led to their death. They were led to their death. But instead, in our triumphal procession, instead of us being led to our place of execution, we find that our general, Jesus Christ, has gone there before us and has died in our place. Therefore, we walk in freedom knowing that his death has already paid for our death. We find acquittal and mercy where we should have found guilt and death. So this is just a beautiful metaphor of being captured by his love, walking in freedom. So how does your identity in Christ affect your calling? We sisters are called to live as captured prisoners of Christ, being led in love and showing off the power of God. This leads to our second metaphor. Paul says we are an incense to God and an aroma to others. And this is found at the end of the first verse with the triumphal procession. And it says, Through us spreads the aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For to God we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To some we are an aroma of death leading to death, but to others an aroma of life leading to life. So the meaning of this word aroma that we first find in verse 14 and then at the end means this, the quality of something that affects the mind as with an odor. This is a smell that triggers memory or knowledge. And we all can think of personal examples of this, right? My late grandmother had a distinct smell. And for, you know, there's rare occasions when I get a whiff of it. All of a sudden, I'm thinking of Nana 
and I have all these emotions about her. Or I smell chocolate chip cookies, and all of a sudden I'm hungry. <laughs> like I just want a chocolate chip cookie. Or I'll mention this this um, this example. I had some smells that made me nauseated when I was pregnant. If I smell them, I all of a sudden feel nauseated. Do y'all relate to the power that smells have? Um, Paul is saying here that we are being led along in his triumphal procession as his captured enemies. And in doing so, we're giving off a smell of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. To those who are perishing, meaning those who have yet to experience the love of Christ, this smell isn't a good smell. It's a stench. It's the smell of death. But to those who are being saved, to those who we worship with in the church, we are an aroma of life leading to life. So as we interact with one another, we should be given off the smell of the life that we have in Christ. And when I'm with you, I'm sensing your identity in Christ and the life you have in Christ. And it's reminding me of the life that I have in Christ. So we're a gospel aroma to others, but we're also a scent or an incense to God. So we see here it says that for to God we are the fragrance of Christ. This Greek word fragrance is a different word than the word used for aroma. And what does that mean? Why is that important? Well, this word refers to an aroma from a sacrifice to God that God finds pleasing. So two examples from the Old Testament. The first is found in Genesis. When Noah came out and his family came out of the ark, he built an altar to God and made a sacrifice. And what does it say? When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, then he gave a soliloquy, right? And then in Exodus, when God gives instructions for the consecration of Aaron and his sons as priests, he gives them instructions about how to take a ram and make a burnt offering on the altar. And what does it say? It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing aroma. What is giving off the pleasing aroma? And I would love your response. Thank you. The offering, the sacrifice. Noah and Aaron, are they giving off the the scent, the pleasing aroma? No, Noah and Aaron are not. So what is so incredible about how Paul uses this metaphor is we expect Jesus to be that uh, pleasing aroma because he's the ultimate sacrifice, right? But and, and this is what we find in Ephesians, that he is a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. But what's incredible here is Paul says we too share in that fragrance. We are not the sacrifice, but because of our union with Christ, Christ who is your life, his aroma has passed to us. So we stand before God, we live before God with Christ, and we share in his pleasing sacrificial fragrance. Our spiritual act of worship, then, is living in this sacrificial way before God. Oh, I didn't get this uh, passage on there, but Romans 12, 1. Do you all know that verse? I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We can't live as living sacrifices 
unless Jesus Christ had already been the sacrifice for us. And as we live with Christ, offering our whole selves to him, it's like an incense going up to God that is so pleasing. So how does your identity in Christ affect your calling? You now live before God, giving off the pleasing scent of Christ's sacrifice on your behalf. And as a result, you live with a particular gospel scent to others. So when others encounter you, they should smell the death and life of Jesus Christ. Like a perfume, right? Okay, third metaphor. Thanks for hanging with me. Letters of recommendation. So Paul says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are a letter written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are Christ's letter, delivered by us, not written with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Letters of recommendation were used in the ancient world to introduce fellow Christians to one another when they traveled around. With letters of recommendation, the person of interest tries to show her effectiveness for the task at hand. We use letters of recommendation today, right? If you're applying to grad school or trying to get a job, we use these letters of recommendation. And we can tell that Paul is upset here, right? Are we having to commend ourselves again? Uh, Remember what I said earlier, they were embarrassed and ashamed of Paul. So Paul subverts a common cultural practice when he says, you know what, I don't need a letter of recommendation because you are my letter of recommendation. I don't need anyone else to validate my apostleship because you validate my apostleship. The Corinthians um, had converted under his preaching even though his preaching was in weakness and trembling. So they didn't value weakness, right? They were ashamed of Paul because of his weakness. But yet Paul says, you converted when I was weak. You converted under the power of the preaching of the gospel. And so they themselves testify to the powerful ministry of the Holy Spirit at work through Paul. And I think it's a good reminder, right, for us, because sometimes we want to put our ministers and, and demand of our ministers things that the world demands of leaders, right, instead of thanking God for their weaknesses um, and thanking God for the power of the ministry of the Holy Spirit that is proclaimed despite and in spite and through their weakness. Secondly, Paul says, you are Christ's letter written with the Holy Spirit. So he first says, you're uh, not written with black ink, but with the Holy Spirit, and you're not written as if on a stone tablet. What was written by the finger of God on stone tablets? Ten Commandments, the Law of Moses. So Paul says here that the same finger of God that wrote those Ten Commandments on stone tablets has written the message of the gospel on your hearts. The same finger of God has written this message on our hearts. The Spirit of God makes alive dead hearts and uses these hearts to communicate his message. Letters and stone tablets are not the message, right? They don't point to themselves. They contain the message and they point to the author. Likewise, I think Paul is saying to us that our lives rooted and joined with Jesus Christ bears witness to the message of his love 
um, and what he has done for us. Sometimes I think we put too much um, effort or too, too much thinking in our evangelization methods. Right? What method do I need to have to let people know about Jesus Christ? I would say the strongest evangelization happens person to person, heart to heart. So live into Jesus Christ. You belong to him. Uh, dwell with him. He is your life. And then you will become that letter of recommendation of his to the world. People will be able to smell the gospel on you. And then they'll be able to read the gospel as they encounter you in conversation and just in life, in action. Okay, we're almost done. Fourth metaphor, jars of clay. So Paul's going to say that we are jars of clay. Now we have this treasure in clay jars so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. That's an incredible statement, right? We always carry on the death of of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may be displayed in our body. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that Jesus' life may be displayed in our mortal flesh. So then death is at work in us, but life in you. And you can continue reading, but just to save on time, um, I'm going to move on. But what's going on here with this metaphor? Again, Paul is defending against uh, Corinthian Christians who would view his weakness as an apostle as a sign of God's weakness. Paul's metaphor knocks down any kind of prideful, fragile, self-based identity. He says that you are jars of clay. What are clay jars? They're earthen vessels. They are cheap. They're fragile. They're expendable. They're inferior. They were at this time an everyday, ordinary utensil. Paul, hmm, why didn't you present us as a beautiful Greco urn to be admired? That would have been nice. Paul, Paul, why didn't you present us as strong bronze uh, uh, vessels? Or Paul, why didn't you use the metaphor of an expensive gold goblet? Why use a clay pot, Paul? And I think Paul would say to us and to them, to show that the power at work in us is from God and not ourselves so that none of us may boast. Paul is not saying here that we're of no value to God, far from it. But we don't have to prove our value to God for he is the God who already loves us. And the way he determines our value isn't in the same way that the world would determine our value. The earthen vessel has no beauty No importance or value in itself, only in what it contains. So there is a striking comparison here between the clay pot and the treasure, which is Christ himself. And how can such a treasure be found in lowly vessels like us? And I think this paradox has been difficult for the American church at large. Um, We can't make sense of this glory through weakness. So we get rid of the weak and the clay and the suffering and the death. And instead, we use power, wealth, and gimmicks to attempt to display the power of the gospel. That's what the world expects, right? 
But the gospel is at odds and cannot mature in vessels of worldly power and glory. The gospel grows in the soil of weakness. I love this quote, this top quote. Human arrogance and pride make unwelcome divine power because divine power does not manifest itself by making the believer powerful. Power does not drive out weakness. On the contrary, it only comes to its full strength and in through weakness. This is good news for someone who knows how weak I am. If we preach that we were to have to become beautiful, expensive pots, then the world won't ever see Jesus. They'll be too busy looking at ourselves, at us, and liking our post. Rather, as cracked clay jars, people can more clearly see the treasure, the beauty of the treasure of Jesus Christ within us. And if this isn't enough of a paradox for us, Paul says that the jar doesn't protect the treasure. How can it? It's fragile. But the treasure sustains the jar. This is why Paul can say he's afflicted but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. Paul is knocked down, but he is never knocked out. The blows have caused fractures, but God has held him together. I can say personally, if it weren't for God sustaining me, I would have broken so many times under the guilt of my sin. If it weren't for Jesus Christ sustaining me, I would have broken down under the weight of losing my apartment when it burned down when I was a grad student and I had nothing. If it weren't for God sustaining me, I would have broken down under the weight when my child was diagnosed with an incurable disease. And if it weren't for Christ sustaining me, I would have broken down every, under the weight of every rejection. Even when my book was rejected twice. They don't talk about that. Um, they just say, she's published. Um, <laughs> so, uh, if it weren't for Christ sustaining us, where would we be? But because we are in Christ, he sustains us in and through trials. And in him, we never have to fear that we will be destroyed. So how does your identity, that you're loved by God, that Christ is your life, how does that affect the way you live? I think Paul would say, sisters, live as clay jars, embodying the power of the gospel in weakness. So um, at the end, I'm going to sum up. To sum, to sum up, Jesus' love compels us to live for him and not for ourselves. To find our true identity or our authentic self in him. He leads us captured by his love and his triumphal procession. Through us, he's giving off the scent of his salvation. By his spirit, he is making us into letters of recommendation. And in us, he has placed the treasure of his son and is sustaining us through trials. So who am I? That's the question. Who am I? I bought this postcard in Rome of a painting, and you can tell it's of who? Who's the woman? The, Samar- the Samaritan woman at the well. And what I love about this image is she's peering over into the well and looking at the water, and you expect to see her image reflected in it, which we do here. But we also see another image reflected in the water, and it's of Jesus Christ. We don't see him bending over the well, 
But we know from his gospel, from the Gospel of John that he comes to her. This woman who had a different identity, who had been defined by what she had done. And the Gospel, the love of Jesus Christ meets her and changes her. And so now when she looks at her reflection, she doesn't just see herself, but she sees Jesus Christ. This is great news for me, and I hope it's great news for you. I am loved by God, even when I was his enemy, and his love compels me because his love was made known ultimately on the cross, wherein God the Son took my place, took my death, so that I might be his daughter. And so here's what I would say to you. Because I know whose I am, I know who I am and how I'm called to live. So I'd say that to you. Because you know whose you are, you can know who you are and how you are called to live. Secure in his love and in Christ, we now live for him. And if we had time today, I would have loved, but I didn't talk, I didn't even tell Shannon this, but I would have loved for us to take Holy Communion, that beautiful sacrament where our, both our taste buds, our eyes, like all of our senses, right, our, our, our hands, our, our ears, we're reminded of this union with Christ. This is his body broken for you. Take and eat. This is his blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Take and drink. There's a participation in his death and resurrection. So I want to end with this prayer. Uh, this is from the liturgy of the whole, of Holy Eucharist, I believe, right one. I think this is a beautiful way for us to end as a way to think and, and reflect and pray to God. Um, so it says, And here we offer and present unto thee, O Lord, ourselves, our souls and bodies, to be a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice unto thee, humbly beseeching thee that we and all others who shall be partakers of this holy communion may worthily receive the most precious body and blood of thy Son, Jesus Christ, be filled with thy grace and heavenly benediction, and made one body with him, that he may dwell in us and we in him. Amen. Okay. I'm going to end in prayer and then uh, you're dismissed or you can just hang out, I think, right? Okay. Heavenly Father, um, Lord Jesus Christ, I'm so thankful, we are so grateful that you loved us when we were unlovable. You loved us when we did not love you. You chose us in us, you chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And that you have given us a new identity, that you have shared your life with us, that your death is our death and our life is your life. I pray that what we've heard from your word would mature in our hearts. And that we would walk away encouraged by your Holy Spirit. In your name, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.